three sides of the coin this week larry mazer is back and man does he bring the stories not just about kiss but of cheap trick and of cinderella and nelson and heaven's edge and black-eyed susan and countless bands he's worked with this is a really cool episode with larry he addresses some of the comments you guys left on youtube as well that and some incredible kiss minutia there is minutia that we didn't know about so you gotta gotta sit through this one it's well worth it larry mazer this is three sides of the coin talking all things kiss i want to rock and roll all night you're listening to three sides of the coin are you looking for official three sides of the coin merchandise t-shirts hoodies and more visit shop three sides of the we ship worldwide everybody welcome back to another episode of three sides of the coin you got two to start with there'll be three of us later and then that one leaves and you know we're just kind of rotating in and out that's why um we're going to keep this intro really short and by short it won't be 30 minutes before we get to the interview here we have larry mazer back we're sorry he wasn't here last week internet went down last week had i mean we were literally 10 minutes away from hitting the play button the internet went down so we we pushed him back to this week that's why last week you got the true story about kiss vision once again from the person who actually founded kiss vision um larry mazer's back he answers a bunch of your questions he talks about a bunch of bands that he's worked with everything from and let me open up the list he talks about Heaven's Edge, Cinderella, of course, of course, Kiss, Moscow Music Peace Festival, Cheap Trick, Union. Um, let's see, talks about um, uh, Kiss and AM Records. Didn't know about that. Kiss opening for White Snake, Black Eyed Susan, Blacktop Mojo. I mean, the list goes on and on. This is an incredible interview once again with Larry Mazer. You want to stay right through the end. And make sure you leave comments because Larry is reading all the comments you guys leave. Every one of them. Hey, um, before, uh, I want to touch on a couple things here before we get to Larry. Um, I cannot believe, and I know Michael and, and Tommy have as well. Hearing from you guys, uh, you know, from the episode before last, um, still waiting for stuff. Um, I'm still waiting for my stuff from uh, from the rock and roll over bundle, still waiting for stuff from the elder bundle. And I sent something to Michael and Tommy and in and, and, and jest, I guess I was kind of just vent a little bit. Um, Iron Maiden just had a 40th anniversary of the Maiden Japan or not Maiden, uh, number of the beast. I bought a few things three days later. They're here. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what we're frustrated about. Are we frustrated at the band? No, we love the band. Obviously, we sit here every week and talk about them. I kiss fandom is is every bit as you know revved up. Matter of fact, I booked on my flight literally about two hours ago. I'm going to see anybody that's going to be at the at the Milwaukee gig. I'll be there. Looking forward to seeing you guys. Um, but that's you know. Let's hopefully they can get the, the get, kiss get their get their customer store. service and shipping fixed. Because listen, I'll, we should mention this: the next volume of Off the Soundboard has been announced, and it's probably not news to you, Mark. But 
It's uh, the reunion show from Donington in 1996. Now, I'm feeling a pretty excited. That's kind of cool. That would have been better than the last one they did. I, I You know what? I, I mistakenly thought that was going to be the one after the, the first one, just because I saw the list. And I'm, if you guys remember, I was like, oh, then, you know, because I look, regardless of show, everyone, I think almost to a man, um, wanted, wanted an original band show. And this, again, this is what the great thing about this one, this isn't one that's been beaten to death. I mean, yeah. you're going to get the, that's what I mean. This is kind of fresh. It's Gene, Paul, Peter, and Ace. So, and this funny thing is too, I mean, fortunately, I don't spend much time on it, but I cannot believe what people complain about. Can we just stop complaining, you know, about trivial stuff like that? Like I said, are we complaining or frustrated? Yeah, I get frustrated when I pay for something and I don't get it or I have to right. wait six months for it. That's a little bit different than going, oh yeah, they finally, but it had to be a reunion show. I'm like, you know, if you're that upset about it, I, Listen, why are this, you this, here? To me, this is great because- this is before the rot set in I with agree. the reunion. So we're getting basically a great version of the original four from the reunion era. Donington is just legendary. I mean, that itself is a legendary venue. I'm looking forward to this. I'm not ordering it from Kiss Online. I don't care if they're switching fulfillment houses. I am waiting for it to show up on Amazon. I don't need all of the bundle stuff, so it will be on Amazon. I'm just going to wait, and I'm going to get it there, and I'm not going to have to worry about shipments. But I feel I feel more excited about this release than I did the Virginia Beach one. Michael, I'm going to wait. I'm going to let some of our other fellow fans, you know, once this new company starts with Kiss Online, I'm going to wait for the positive reviews, and then... Then I'll, I'll think I'll, about coming back. Yeah, because I, I got to admit, I do like the bundles. I again, that's the fun thing, you know. For me, I I just can't do it with the way we we're treated on the destroyer yep. one. I and and why the way people are still being treated? I literally just heard from somebody today who ordered the second off the soundboard from Kiss Online, and they still haven't got it yet. And it was released on March 11th. We're approaching a week yet. It'll by the time this comes out. It'll have been a month. That's just not acceptable. Correct. Hey, uh, speaking of stuff that, you know, you can't get anymore. I mean, you probably should have ordered. We, I don't think we talked about it much, but hey, now. The Alan strikes again, man. How many books the, has he released in five years? Yeah. Uh, it's cool. I was, you know, fortunate. They, they asked me to uh, provide some stuff or a few things in my, matter of fact, there's something of mine on the back cover. So, but uh, like I said, you know, it's cool helping with these things. If you haven't, they're sold out. They're sold out now. online. But if, let me tell you, this book, it's, as it says, it's all focused on the promo stuff. Alan, you knocked it out of the park. And Pierre, you as well, because I know you guys collaborated on it. Phenomenal job. And also, before we get to our, our, uh, our guest, if you haven't gotten it, it's yeah, on the newsstands now in the U.S. Yeah, in America. And uh, look at this. Look at these beautiful guys. Our former, I, 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 uh, I heard Mark was standing at a Barnes and Nobles doing <laughs> autograph sessions. <laughs> no, but uh, I, I tell you what, that was such a fun day with Frank. and That was and, quite and an honor. Yep. 
Yep. Yeah. So that, but also too, in this issue, Larry Mazur. Seven um, pages. Yeah. He's in there. Billy Rowe. Cause this is a, cause someone said, is this now going to be the Buck Cherry podcast? Yeah, it is. Cause Buck Cherry fucking rules yeah. and you guys should love them too. <laughs> so. so yeah. So oh. check out the new rock candy. Um, but Hey, let's just go. We got Larry Mazer. He's back. He's answering a bunch of your questions. We ask him some cool stuff. This is probably close to two hours of Larry Mazer again. We'll see you at the end. You have something to say? Leave a voicemail or send us a text message. Call 320-515-4771. Every month, more than 50,000 musicians, industry professionals, and rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and KISS fans from around the world listen and engage with the Three Sides of the Coin podcast. If you have a new release or a product or service and would like to reach this audience, Get in touch with Michael to discuss sponsorship opportunities. Visit threesidesofthecoin.com. Three sides. We we've been we've been hyping this. We've been promising this. We had a little hiccup last week, but we've got Larry Mazer joining us again this week. He's going to be answering some of your questions. He's going to be addressing some things he wants to address. Uh, this is going to be kiss and rock and roll talk today so larry before we get into some of the questions here i know you mentioned you wanted to touch a couple yes. topics yeah if you don't mind indulging me before nope. we get started on some new stuff you know i was uh quite overwhelmed by the response to uh the last time we did this and uh, the amount of people that watched it blew me away and uh the amount of really positive comments really uh touched me in that you know, as a manager, you don't really get thanked a lot by your clients or by uh, anybody. So to hear uh, so many nice comments from people really uh, meant a lot to me and uh, sort of validated for myself what I've done over the last 50 years for these clients. So that was positive. But being the masochist that I am, <laughs> I did spend most of my time rereading and rereading and rereading the few negative comments. <laughs> Okay. Ah. So, so in order for me to get off of the uh, antidepressants I've started taking since the last uh, time I was on, I'd like to uh, take a few minutes to address the negative comments that people had um, so that I can clear the air on a few things. I am kidding, by the way, about the antidepressants. Yes. I've never taken antidepressants. That was my attempt at humor. That's okay. So basically, I've got four, uh, four categories I need to address to sort of... Uh, clear the air on certain things. Uh, the first one is, as you know, we started last time talking about the Eric Carr uh, death and his leaving Kiss. And a number of people had commented that they were disappointed that even though I was as truthful as I felt I could be from my point of view with the whole situation, that I didn't address some of the urban legends as far as how Eric was treated in his last days by the other members of KISS, mainly about some sort of life insurance that supposedly was canceled while he was ill. And I want to remind everybody that by the time I became the manager of KISS, they had been a band for 15 years. So even though I was intrinsically involved with tour budgets, record budgets, etc., the general running of the KISS company, I had nothing to do with and they had lawyers, business managers, Jess Hilson, et cetera. So 
anything as far as how Eric was dealt with on a business from the Kiss Company level, I literally have zero knowledge of. So, you know, I just want to clear the air that I wasn't evading anything. I thought I was brutally honest from where I sat in the position of manager to his illness and his subsequent death. But uh, as far as any business dealings that he had or his estate had or his family had with the Kiss Company, I am totally ignorant to those things. So hopefully that'll end that conversation. Along the same lines, a lot of people commented about my recollection of the attendances on the revenge tour. <laughs> and again, I wanna remind people that as much as I pride myself on a spectacular memory, which I think everybody has seen in the last interview, that was 30 years ago between Lamb of God, Breaking Benjamin, Buck Cherry, Megadeth, Anthrax, Stone Sour, et cetera, et cetera. I've done overseen over thousands of shows in the last 30 years. So I do not claim to have perfect recall over every show. Uh, and also the mind sometimes blocks out negativity um, in a normal fashion. So since your fans are diehard KISS fans, and I would never question their accuracy as far as their memories, I will say that they probably are right, and I might be wrong as far as my memories of the how that tour did. Um, I will say that my memories of the shows that I was at, which were the initial warm-up date in Allentown, which was sold out, the L.A. show, which was sold out, the weekend that we filmed for uh, Kiss Confidential and recorded for Kiss Live 3, which was Cleveland, Indianapolis, and Detroit, those shows I remember being all sold out. Uh, but it is very possible that the business wasn't as good as I remember it. Uh, the one that really bothers me was a couple of people commented about the show here in Philly at the Spectrum, saying that it was pretty empty. And that one, I've racked my brain for the last three weeks, and I cannot remember clearly that that show was a bomb. But again, excuse me, I will defer to your fan base that if they say these shows were empty, I stand corrected. But Again, to my memory, I don't clearly remember that many bombs. And the shows that I specifically remember being at, which were the five I mentioned, they were quite successful. But again, I will defer to the masses of your fan base that if they weren't good, they weren't good. So there you go. All right, switching bands now. Um, there was one comment, which I laughed about for about a week, about somebody commented that they thought Buck Cherry was too full, too vulgar to be successful. <laughs> I didn't see that one. And let's remember, this is a band that's been nonstop for now 23 years. Um, I will say that, again, as the manager, I'm not thrilled by the use of the word fuck as much as the band uses it in their songs and on Josh's stage patter. But it does cause a lot of aggravation for managers because you have to do clean versions of records, which is a pain in the ass that every record, you have to look at every lyric. And if there is the use of fuck or shit or whatever curse word there is, you have to do, you have to get with the producer and do clean edits, which is a pain in the ass. Every country has different regulations for what is clean and what's not clean. Also, as you know, since the uh, days of the congressional hearings, you have to put extreme labels on records. And even on Spotify, you'll see little E's 
next to songs. So it is a pain in the ass. And I've encouraged Josh to try and cut down the use of fucks. But having said that, you know, we carry online with us a the, the song Crazy Bitch, which is their most popular song, which is laden with curse words, um, has had over 200 million streams since the start of Spotify, does a million streams every month. And on tour, we carry a Crazy Bitch t-shirt which, which we've carried and they've carried since 1990, 1995 when the record came out. And I will truthfully say that it outsells every single other T-shirt on the tour. Last night, as an example, in Ralston, Nebraska, it sold more than the other three shirts combined. And this is a female tank shirt. So this is bought 100% by women. My wife so, owns one. So again, <laughs> women and I go to the shows that you guys have and you watch when they when Josh does a sing along in Crazy Bitch, it's all girls singing the chorus. So, you know, again, I'm not disagreeing that the vulgarity is a problem and that it's probably a little too much. But reality is that proof is in the pudding. The song with the biggest vulgarity has 200 million streams and the T-shirt. I can't keep it in stock. So that's 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 the end Eric, of that discussion. Don't apologize. Fuck them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and the last the last thing, which again I left the funnest one for last, uh, was the comment from a Cinderella person who said that when I discussed about my meeting with them, wrote and I'm trying to remember it exactly, but said when you had that meeting, the first thing you should have said to them is they should have changed their name. So for the entire career of the band, 13 years that I worked with them, I was shocked that we never got sued by the Walt Disney Company for Cinderella. Um, always expected a cease and desist, never had it happen. Um, but again, as with Crazy Bitch, I will say that Cinderella under my time sold close to 25 million records worldwide and still is out there under Tom Kiefer from Cinderella touring to this day. So is it a person who said they should change your name? Go fuck yourself. There you go. <laughs> That's the you know, spirit. Larry, my, my answer to all those fans is, what band did you manage, by the way, so I can yeah. judge your credibility and your experience for making these statements? Oh, you've never been in a band. Nothing more to say. Right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so those are the uh, four topics of uh, negativity that I got off the 144 comments that you can find on YouTube that uh, I felt I had to address to uh, clear the air. So having said that, I'm all, you know, you know Larry, I, I wonder if the fan who said um, Buck Cherry swears too much is the same one who says the same thing to us every couple of weeks. Cause we'll get fans who are like, you guys swear too much in your podcast. You've got to stop swearing. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. We're just talking like we're in a bar. And if that offends exactly. you go find another bar. We're just a exactly. bunch of guys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So let's let's start with. Um, and I promise to be as brutally honest today as I was. A few oh, weeks we ago. know you will. We know I you mean, will. That's what we love about. Well, you. But before you take the first question, I want to make a mention about the crazy bitch thing for a, a couple of different reasons. And I want to say this to people that don't know Buck Cherry all that well. It's a great song. It really is. But it, there's so much more than that. That just happens to be kind of their mantra. And it's so severe that I was walking in downtown Clear Lake 
which is where the surf ballroom is, right. uh, where Buddy Holly and, and stuff right. played. And we're, I was with Billy and Francis, and we're walking, looking at the Buddy Holly stuff. And this girl comes up. She, she's like, are you guys in Buck Cherry? And they're like, well, yeah. She's like, crazy bitch was the first dance at my wedding. <laughs> just like, I, I, I can't i can't even go to that one that no one i can't even go to larry have you ever seen the you ever seen the video of the girl walking it's an outside wedding walking it's on youtube it's freaking hilarious really? this girl's outside wedding and this guy like the grandparent and the, and the father grabs this kid's fucking ears it's hilarious and she's just come strutting down to that song. And I'm like, look, I love that song. I love, but some things are sacred. Yeah. But your wedding. Yeah. Eh, right. I think we're going to yeah. skip that one. <laughs> um, all right. So let, let, let's hit a few questions here. Okay. Um, Colin Mosley. Did you ever consider having Kiss and Cinderella on the same bill? Uh, no. Um, one of the reasons was that the cycles didn't line up, uh, as far, I'm trying to think. So Cinderella did 86 with Bon David Lee Roth and Bon Jovi. Then 88 was, we start off with Judas Priest and ACDC. Then it segued into the headline tour in 89. And then the Heartbreak Station tour was 91, whereas Kiss was 89 into 90 and then 92 and 93. So the cycles never lined up and both bands were bonafide. By the time Kiss, I mean, Cinderella was a bonafide headliner. So really there was they, never- they, they would, Yeah, why, 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 would they, why would they go down to an opening slot if they were able yeah. to headline? Yeah, so yeah, no, I never really thought about that because they were on different cycles of album time. And also they were both bonafide headliners. So there really wasn't a thought to do that. So um, Daniel Hughes, was it ever discussed to record live three on the hot in the shade tour? No, no. What, what happened was that it's after hot in the shade and revenge, it had been, it had been, let's see. So 78 was uh kiss alive two, And this was uh 92. So it was 14 years. So yeah, my, my thought was when I went to them, and this is something I had to convince them about, and the label was, I said, look, it's been 14 years. It feels like the time is right now for Kiss Alive 3, based on the success of one and two, how many millions of records they sold. So really it was, it was that was the time really where I felt like 14 years had gone by and it was the right time to do Kiss Alive 3. So you were the one that actually was kind of bringing it to them. You didn't have yeah. Gene and Paul saying, no. we want to do a live album. We want to no. do a live album. No, no. What was disappointing was since then, they did Kiss Alive 4, the symphony tour, like X amount of years later. Then they've done X amount of live things since then. And now they're releasing these Kiss Live soundboard things. But at the time, I just felt that 14 years had gone by. It was time for in this cycle for Kiss Alive 3. Sure. Well, and can you can you give a little bit more insight to the listeners about the cycle and how you as a manager approach that and how you rely on watching how things transpire over the career to line things up? It's not just by chance, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. 
No, it was just, like I said, it was a situation that I felt they had come back strong with Hot in the Shade and Revenge as far as the live show. Uh, and there were a lot of new songs uh, since Kiss Alive 2 that I felt would have done good with that vibe. And it just felt like, okay, this is the next thing. You know, so that's that was really it. It was just a, a gut feeling that it had been 14 years and it was time to do Kiss Alive 3. And well, also remember it was part of a, there was two parts. It was Kiss Alive 3. We had done Extreme Close Up on the Hot in the Shade tour, which was a very platinum DVD. Well, VHS. VHS. It wasn't a DVD. Yeah. So, but it was a very successful video product. And the label uh, wanted to do another product for the Revenge Tour. So I said, well, let's, let's film a show. Let's do a film show and we'll, we'll fill it in with all kinds of other stuff off, you know, back, you know, story stuff, whatever. But let's do a, a, live, a live VHS, so to speak. And since we were, you had to, to film the video, you have to also film the audio. So the fact, or record the audio to go with the filming, to go with the video part of it. So we were going to bring a truck out anyway to record the concerts for the for the DV, for the VHS. So it was just obvious that hey, we're going to record this. We're going to have the audio. We're recording three nights. Let's put out a live album as the complement to the VHS of Kiss Confidential. During your time with with Kiss, how did how did Polygram? Um, view them were they were they a top level priority act in polygram's eyes or were they one of these bands it's like boy they they've got a great history but we're still always kind of struggling to to sell well, a lot all right i will now tell a story that's never been told good segue like um so when when kiss when i became the manager of hot in the shade um there was one president um, who had been there a while, Dick Asher, who was also there for the Cinderella Records. He then left the company, uh, and then they went to a co-president concept with an African-American gentleman named Ed Eckstein, who was very heavy in the R&B field, and Mike Bone, who was a rock promotion guy, who I have a, to this day a lot of respect for. And they did, were set did, up Did Mike come from Chrysalis? Is yes. that the same Mike Bone? Okay. Yes, and Electra and a number of others. Okay. Anyway... Um, so there was a co-president and I, and the company was run by a French guy named Alain Levy. Um, and I felt this was not good. And it really affected, it affected how Cinderella was dealt with. It affected the two other baby bands I had, Black Eyed Susan and Company of Wolves at the label, uh, because you had these two guys who came from two different worlds. So after, uh, after Revenge, literally I said to the guys, this is this is really not good. The, the vibe is completely different from when they first started. Obviously, the legendary Neil Bogart through different presidents, then Dick Asher, and then these two guys. And then what happened was Mike Bone got fired, and they made Ed Eckstein the sole president. And ironically, I was on an airplane going somewhere, and on the plane was Al Cafaro, who at that time was the general manager of AM Records which if you remember was part of the Polygram family because they all the labels had been consolidated, Island Records, Mercury Records, Polydor Records and A&M were all in the same label group. And we were talking and he said, how's it going with things? And I said, well, I'm not really happy with this new setup. And he goes, well, 
would you be interested in maybe trying to move it over to A&M because, you know, we're in the same labor group and probably could be done very easily. So Gene and I had a meeting with Alon Levy at the, at the uh, Sunset Marquee uh, in one of the bungalows. And we actually talked to Alon about, hey, we're not really thrilled. We don't think the love is there. You know, this new regime wasn't there during the great years of the big album sales. We question whether this regime really is into this band versus the new bands on the label, whether it was Cinderella or, or Kingdom Come or et cetera, et cetera. You know, we'd like to discuss potentially moving over to A&M. And we talked about it and talked about it. And then what happened was I had a subsequent meeting with Ed Eckstein, who swore to me that uh, the band was a major priority, that there was still a lot of love in the building. And that's why uh, we decided to carry on. But there was a moment there where we did talk about trying to get off the label, not going to like Columbia or Warner Bros., but moving laterally to another in-house label, which was A&M. You know, and, and the reason I ask is I remember back during the Hot in the Shade tour, I knew one of the rock radio promo people there. And he was telling me, he's like, Mike, you know, Kiss does, and he was talking about Chicago specifically, Hot in the Shade tour, they played the World Theater. You know, they did great numbers in, in concert, but we only sold 800 albums off of that great show. And he's like, the problem with Kiss is we always have problems selling the albums even when they're doing great numbers on the road. So I, I just wondering if that was, if that's sort of been Kiss's problem all the way back to the seventies. I mean, that's the reason Alive happened is because people weren't buying albums and you know, it was a great well, live. But having, having, listen, having said that, Hot in the Shade did about 700,000 copies. Uh, Revenge did about seven or 800,000 copies. So, I mean, they weren't bombs by any no. stretch, but they, were, they did have a huge record deal, um, massive record deal for the times. Um, so on a P&L basis, you know, maybe people felt that uh, it's not doing as well as on a P&L basis as some of the earlier records are. So therefore, you know, let's not chase a third single or a fourth single. Let's not do a third or fourth video, whatever. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. But it had been they had been through numerous regimes since they were signed in 74. And uh and this new regime, and like I said, I was frustrated with how they were treating Cinderella. They dropped both Company of Wolves and Black Eyed Susan, both bands that got, for the time, both bands got $400,000 advances when I made the deal. Um, uh, in the case of Black Eyed Susan, it was a three firm for $400,000. So they dropped the band and wrote me a check for $800,000 to go away. Um, which is absurd if you think about it. But, um, you know, again, when regimes change, they have their favorite bands and uh, their new signings that are their pet projects. And Kiss had been there at that point, what, uh, 15, 16 years. And, uh, you know, luckily there were guys like Drew Murray. I don't know if that's who you're referring to was the head of rock promotion at Mercury at the time. Um, but Drew was still a diehard Kiss fan. A lot of the field people were, but the senior executives didn't really feel a connection because they weren't there for the glory years. So it happens at every label. I mean, you know, you can go to, you can pick out any band, yep. you know, and, and say, I mean, the same thing. I mean, Buck Cherry would, you know, when DreamWorks, when a second record didn't do as good as the first record, it was, you know, out with the old in with the new. So arguably know. a better record. I love time bomb. 
Yeah, what but, a fucking mm-hmm. great record. I mean, again, this is this is what's. I mean, again, this is the way the music business has always been. I mean, you know, Cinderella after the still climbing record got dropped. I mean, so right. you know, we had that's sold a great record. You know, triple oh, platinum no on triple platinum on the first two, platinum on Heartbreak Station, and, and then uh, then the whole grunge thing happened, and uh, still climbing sold two hundred thousand copies. And the next thing I know, I'm getting called into the principal's office to be told, "Hey, we're letting the band go." So, you know, it happens. Hey, Larry, can I, uh, can I push your memory to a single gig? Just wondering if there's any more uh, to it. Um, the Toronto gig with Whitesnake, when yes. Kiss and Whitesnake got into the yes. big kerfuffle. There's a nice word. It's a nice 50 center. Oh, you can swear, um, Mark. <laughs> not anymore. God. Well, I lost, I lost it. I lost a friend over that show. So I'll gladly talk to you about it. What do you want to know? I would love to hear any um, inside baseball, as they say on that show. Well, it's funny because I am interviewed in a book called Kiss Alive Forever. I don't know if you guys have read that. I'm sure you must oh, yeah. know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a day-by-day story. And I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm interviewed, I'm, I'm covered on about 40 pages. On there. I do tell in detail the story of that show, but I will gladly tell it to you now. So we're booking the tour and we're doing the tour and I get an offer to go play what was at that time the big venue in Toronto, which was the CNE Football Stadium. Uh, it's since been overshadowed, obviously, by the Rogers Center, and they built the Molson Amphitheater right behind it, which holds 20,000 people. But this at the time was uh, the big arena, the big outdoor arena in Toronto. It's where the uh, Toronto Blue Jays first played when they became an MLB team. And uh, it's where the uh, whatever the Toronto Argonauts football team played before they built the stadium. Anyway, and the offer was good money, but it was opening for Whitesnake. And David Coverdale was a very good friend of mine up until that show. Um, and I was, I was really excited by it. And I told the guys, we're going to do this show. And, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to use anything. You're going to fill out and play a rock and roll show. And you guys are a great rock and roll band. Just go out on this one date and just be a rock and roll band. But unfortunately, Paul Stanley, uh, once he gets on stage, doesn't know what to do if he doesn't have the whole thing. So went on to a tirade about how Whitesnake refused them to let them do their pyro, let them do their staging, and we're going to kick their asses and blah, 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 blah. And the end result is David Coverdale has not spoken to me since that day. Um, as much as I've tried to reach out, he hasn't, you know, and I, I, under, the, under the excuse of David, I wasn't there. What do you want me to do? But he hasn't spoken to me since that day. And, uh, you know, it, unfortunately, uh, Paul was uh, not happy with what he had agreed to, which was to just go do a rock and roll show and and verbalized it. And uh, there you go. And there's the did, story. Did, did Gene and Paul put up any resistance or questioning in in when you first brought it to him of like, no, we're Kiss. We're not open no. for Whitesnake. No, no. I mean, the deal was, was, it was just a good right? deal. Remember, Whitesnake was ginormous at the time. I mean, they had a 1987 record, which had sold 7 million copies. It was, and the place was packed. There was 30,000 people there. But uh, unfortunately, Paul could not help himself and uh, went on a little verbal tirade. And, uh, you know, I lost a friend because of it. David held, David, David held you responsible for what Paul said. Even though I'm sitting in Voorhees, New Jersey, he, uh, it was my fault. You know, Um, there's, there's the story. Before we go back to some questions here, you brought up um, Black Eyed Susan, and yeah. and that's a band that, you know, 
most people are like, I've never heard of them. What, who are you talking about? I love that album. When that came out, I thought it was a fabulous album. So give me, again, to Mark's point, a little inside baseball on, on how they came to be and then how come they were just a flash in the pan that didn't even last? Not even a flash in a pan. There was no pan. There was no flash. It was yeah. just a pan. It's, ironic. it's an ironic story, and it's, it's kind of uh, uh, kismet in a way in that, uh, as everybody knows, or probably knows, and we talked about the last time I was on, um, when, Tom, when Cinderella got signed, Derek Shulman demanded that the drummer and the uh, other guitarists get fired from the band. And these were two guys who Tom had gone to grade school with, known him his whole life, and but Tom was committed to being a rock star and said, all right, I'll get rid of them. Uh, much to their credit, they went and formed a band called Britney Fox. Um, and the singer was a guy named Dizzy Dean Davidson, who ironically sounded like Tom Kiefer when he wanted to. And so everybody thought that Britney Fox was Cinderella light. But having said that, the first record had some very good songs and went gold. And the second record wasn't as successful and Dean, being the great personality he is, alienated everybody else in the band and left the band. And out of the blue, he called me one day and he said, can I come tell you what I'm doing? And he came to my office with three other guys, one of which was a guy named Rick Crenitti, who was the offstage keyboard player for Cinderella, another guy named Tony Santoro, and uh, a bass player whose name I forget at this point in time, and a drummer who I also forget at this point in time. Anyway, and he played me this group of songs and it was in a normal singing voice, not the Tom Kiefer-ish screeching mm -hmm. voice, but a normal singing voice. And I was blown away. And he said, would you manage me? And I said, absolutely. This is great music. I love this. And I sent it out to all my label friends and everybody wanted to sign him. And uh, my, the guys at Mercury came and called me and said, listen, you know, where's the loyalty? We have, you have Kiss with us, you have Cinderella with us, you have Ingve Malmsteen with us, you know, you have Company of Wolves with us, you know, you know, we want your loyalty. And I said, okay, fair enough, but I want three firm, meaning you have to pay for each, regardless of pay or play, and I want $400,000 a record. And uh, they agreed to it. Um, and we made the record, and... Uh, I called my friend Dave Kaplan, who managed Bullet Boys, who I gave their tour, first tour to, opening for Cinderella and Long Cold Winter. And I said, hey, I see Bullet Boys are going on tour. I would like you to do me a favor and take Black Eyed Susan, which he did. Uh, the tour was pretty good. Uh, the label worked one track. And again, this was a period of time where labels were really watching their pulse string, purse strings. And they obviously were not happy with the success of the first track. And uh, basically, again, this was, you know, they got signed right when this two president thing took over Mercury. And like I said, Mike Bone was getting fired. And I had a meeting with Ed Eckstein, uh, the remaining president, and Alain Levy, the chairman, the French guy. And he said, listen, uh, I don't believe in this band. I also don't believe in Company of Wolves. And uh, we love you, but I'm dropping both bands. And there you go. Larry, 
you know, maybe a little insight to the music business here. You mentioned that that they had offers from basically all the labels you knew and you presented them to. Mm -hmm. um, and and you went with with Mercury because you had other acts there. If you had taken them to a different label, is it realistic to sit here and say, well, Mercury could have then hurt Cinderella because no, they felt no, or no. kiss? I no. mean, they don't play no, that way. No, they don't play that way. It was, it was just, but they did, they did say to me, hey, you know, we, we all love you here. We have a great relationship with you. Why wouldn't you want to put this band with people you have a relationship with? And they were right. I mean, I was very comfortable with everybody there. And then, like I said, unfortunately, the senior leadership changed, which affected a lot of things. Uh, but at the time that I made the deal, I was very comfortable there. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was definitely they paid the check and uh, it was it was not the wrong move to make the day it was made. Subsequently, when the, when it happened, happened, then it was ended up being a mistake in retrospect. But at the time, it was not a mistake. Okay, fair enough. And someone um, had someone had mentioned to me recently that Dean is now back, and they are going to reform the actual Brittany Fox because the bass player has been out on his own forever doing it. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but that I, would be. You know what? I think that would be great. I yeah. think that would be great if they did it because look, I mean, look at all those bands from that area that were just on the Monsters of Rock cruise and doing doing quite well, and most of those bands are still still touring today and uh, and selling tickets. So, you know, why not? Absolutely. I think they would do right. well. As a matter of fact, I should call so, him. It's a DZ, DZ you should. No, you should. I'd probably Ser manage no, the band, you know? You sh Larry, seriously, you should, because that's a, that's another band. I, I agree with Michael. I thought the Black Eyed Susan record was, was good as well, and I really like the first Britney Fox record, so I would love to see you call them and get them out, because no, I, quite I honestly... I this, but uh, I'll have to... Uh, I don't know if Mike Shermick uh, still loves me because uh, again, I was the guy who fired him from Cinderella and we haven't really spoken since that day, but who knows, but Dean out of the blue will call me like every five years and say hello. And the last I talked to him, he was living in LA. So I don't know he had moved back to this area. So if that's true. I'll definitely uh, reach, try and reach out somehow to see what's going on because uh, I think that band could make some money, especially right Absolutely. now with the uh, 80s revival. Sure. Yep, And they could fit in on so many of those festivals. Um, oh, they, they, they do good wait. on the on the on the cruise. Um, I'm not yeah. a fan, but I, I think they do good on the cruise. I think people like that sort of stuff. Oh, so. Mark, we know you're just looking for uh, an '80s glam band to be drummer for. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really what it's all about. Go ahead, I don't want to forget. So, okay. did you get a hold of Cinderella before or after the Pat's Dog commercial? After. Okay. So for those of you that are, are Cinderella fans and don't know this, they there's a, a Pat's Dogs, which is a local <laughs> hot anymore. dog stand. It became, it became, after that, it became a jack-in-the-box. Okay. Then it became something else. Ironically, the building is still there. I don't know what it is now, but the building is, I think it's a Four Eyes or something, but the okay. building is still there. But no, that was uh, five or six incarnations ago. Yeah, it was Pat's, it was Pat's Cheesesteaks, yes. Okay, so check it out on YouTube. You can find it. It's really that quite entertaining. Yeah, it's, it's, like a, a class, it's, a it's a classic local commercial with Cinderella. <laughs> yes. um, so, Larry, we got a question from Mark Stroming here. Uh, Kiss didn't tour the U.S. at all in 93 or 94, except for a few one-off shows. Did you push for tours to happen in those years, or were Gene and Paul just not interested? Neither. 
it was at the, the, the revenge cycle had ended. Yeah. Um, and the, at that point it was, we had done Kiss Alive 3. There was no point to go do a Kiss Alive 3 tour. Uh, and next on my plate was another new studio album. Unfortunately, next on their plate was the legendary Kiss My Ass tribute record. And as we discussed the last time, that's when my relationship ended in 1994. But yeah, there was no need. Uh, we had done the revenge tour. We then put out Kiss Live 3 and there was no need to tour behind that. So uh, the next tour by my calendar would have been after another studio album. Sure. And, and I, I was horribly disappointed with the Kiss My Ass record. Me too. Uh, I Because I had heard some great things and maybe you can shed a little light on this because I don't understand you know artists or bands that are signed with labels and getting permission for them to do a song on a different label and all that but i had heard stuff like madonna doing i was made for loving you and well then we did i thought we discussed this the last time did we not discuss this not 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 into not, this not depth, in just more no. of you you were very unhappy and didn't like that move yeah so yeah i mean that what, what there was was i think i told you a little bit i'll get into a little more so so everybody knows that i how i came up how i showed gene the hard to believe tribute from the Seattle yeah, bands. Yeah, and then all of a sudden I could see the wheels spinning and he goes, go to Mercury, get $2 million. We're going to do kiss my ass, blah, blah, blah. So I went to Gene's house and his office was above the garage. Uh, for historical purposes, the house we saw on family jewels, that's the property where the old house is, but that house was torn down and that yep. new mansion was built, which Gene has now sold. But so there was a garage a two-story garage and the second floor was Gene's office. And I went in there and there was a big whiteboard on the wall and it had Madonna. I was made for loving you. Guns and Roses, blah, blah, blah. But this one, blah, 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 blah. And I said, do you want me to help? And he goes, nope. I have to do this artist to artist. And I said, okay, fine. So he would call Madonna. And he'd say, hey, Madonna, Kiss tribute record. I was made for loving you. Want to do it? Oh, Gene, absolutely, sure, great, whatever. Hang up. Ten minutes later, I get a call from Freddie Demand, the manager going, what are you, out of your mind? Madonna's not going to do a song on a Kiss tribute record. And the same thing with, you know, Slash, Gene, you want to do a song, Kiss My Ass? Oh, Gene, would love to, love to. Ten minutes later, you know, Doug Goldstein, the manager of Guns N' Roses, calls me and goes, are you out of your mind? There's no way in life that Guns N' Roses is going to do a song on a Kiss tribute record. And then Basically, that was it, and that's why the track listing ended up being the underwhelming track listing that it was, you know, but whatever. Well, so do you think Madonna didn't want to do it because yeah, of... I don't think she wanted to do it. Okay. But who, not, says no to, but who, says, who says no to Gene Simmons? Nobody, so, you know. We have to stay on this subject. Larry, what do you know about the no ace makeup on the cover? Nothing. Okay. I was By that point, I was gone. I mean, I was, yeah. you know... I, I was gone before the final tracks, the, before the final bands were locked in and, and before anything was recorded, I was gone at that point. So I, I literally, that was it. I, you know, I walked away and that was the end of that. So from um, that point forward, I'm not, I'm not a good expert, unfortunately. We've got a question from Brett May. What was Paul's reaction to forever going to number eight on the Billboard charts? Thrilled to death, except he always called it, when he was on stage on that tour, if you guys that were there remember, he always said it went to number one, <laughs> which well, I love. And, and you know like, what? God bless. I mean, I, you know, I never had a problem with him saying that, but it did go to number eight. And obviously, look, it was the first hit single they had had since, they've had two top 10 singles, Beth, which went to six, 
and forever, which went to eight. And that's it. And that's why I'm proud of the fact that I delivered one of their two top 10 singles, but they were thrilled. But I did get a kick every night when he would go, hey, people, you made this song number one. And I would like laugh and I'd crack up. But it was, Well, uh, you know, it's it's yeah. like Paul, if he can't remember what album a song came off of, it all came off of Kiss Alive. Right. Well, if you take six and sort of stretch it out, it becomes a one. So I guess... Uh, I guess in his uh, in his way of the string theory of life, you can make a six into a one. But look, they obviously everybody was overjoyed. I mean, the label, the band, myself. I mean, it was it was a great thing. It was absolutely great. And I thought the presentation live was gorgeous with the lasers. And uh, it was a highlight of a kiss show for me was uh, was that song. I agree. Um, Jimmy Clifford. Um, We're ask- the girls. No girls. Uh, actually, <laughs> I, not, I was probably not of, the, here. Probably of the 144 not. comments on the, the last show, not one of them was from a girl. That really uh, that's, that, that's, the, that's the Kiss fan base, sadly. I guess so. Um, Indeed. could you please ask Larry about the Hot in the Shade tour in the UK, May 1992? Was it solely to capitalize on the recent chart success of God Gave Rock and Roll to You? Would it have happened without the hit single? Yes. Yes. I mean, and, and yeah, there was, I mean, look, the band had always done European tours and, you know, we felt that uh, even though the revenge album, it was technically the beginning of the revenge cycle when it came out, because that's, you know, we shot the video for, I just want on a holy over there. Um, we wanted to take the, the revenge stage show had not yet been built. So we wanted to go over with a show. So we took the hot in the shade show for technically what was the beginning of the revenge tour cycle. But yeah, it was always, always the plan to do worldwide. I mean, I always do worldwide touring. So, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, I spent most of today working on a European tour for Buck Cherry for next year. So, I mean, uh, all my tours are worldwide tours. So it was, it was the obvious to do, to go do a European tour. So hit single or not, we would have gone over and done a tour. Um, and, and I don't know, we never really got into this in any of our other interviews that I recall, but Bill Tripkowski says, um, he had heard that Dean Castronova was a contender to replace Eric Carr and that Ainsley Dunsbar was also considered. Do you have any memories of, of auditions or replacement drummers? To me, it was always Eric Singer. That's my memory. It was always it was always Eric Singer. He had played on Paul's solo tour that he had done um, a few years before, and that uh, that was it. It was Eric Singer. I've never heard those names ever. So maybe, as far as you know, there there may not have even been auditions or calls for other people. They just not that I know. I mean, again, I'm not privy to calls between Gene and Paul, but sure, I never heard. Uh, to me, it was always Eric Singer. Um. Were you involved, and I'm asking this to make sure this question is legit, were you involved with Heaven's Edge? No. Okay, so then we won't ask this question. But, 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 I mean, well, listen, well, well, it's funny, they're another they're a Philadelphia band. Yeah. Um, well, here's the funny, so, so they're a Philadelphia band, and the drummer, Dave Rath, uh, after the band broke up, there was an Italian restaurant across the street from my house where I would take my family for dinner every Sunday. And Dave was a waiter at that restaurant. Um, and so we stayed friendly during that period of time. And then he got offered a job to be an A&R administrator at, um, 
at Roadrunner, where he was there for the next X amount of years until about four months ago, when he became president of Sumerian Records. We're asking Alexandra and uh, and Black Veil Brides is signed, and he's now the president. So he went from being the drummer in Heaven's Edge to a waiter to being president of a record company. And what's funny is when Heaven's Edge play now, and they play every year at the M3 Festival in Baltimore and a few other things, Dave does take a leave of absence to go play the shows. Interesting. So it's, so it's the original band, except for the bass player who died of cancer, I think a year or two ago. And 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 just to give credit, this was from Shane Drums. He was asking why Heaven's Edge really didn't achieve commercial success. I got to be honest with you, I didn't think the record was that good. I mean, the managers were two guys, Larry Goldfarber and Rick Cohen, who were close friends of mine. They also managed Jeffrey Gaines, who was on A&M Records. Um, I, I personally was not a big fan of the record. And uh, I, I, it's funny, I listened to it about a month ago. And again, I found myself still not a big fan of the record. It was, I think there was one track that got radio play. I forget the name of it. It was pretty good, but I, I wasn't a huge fan of the record. And I, I wasn't surprised that it didn't break through. So, Hey, Larry, speaking of bands that didn't hit big back then, and they were just, a, you know, just a, you know, what do you say, a shot in the dark. But I loved him was uh, um, the Four Horsemen. I don't know how that first record didn't take off. Rockin' is my business was the single. I thought it was a great song. I and I thought they had good, I don't know, street cred until you see the fucking video. That was one of those things. Is like, why did they? You know, the video was fucking horrible. But that's a great record. That's one I still spin a lot. Well, I didn't you know, know if it was in your wheelhouse. It's, fu it's funny. Over over COVID, I you know sitting on my couch for thirteen months gave me a lot of time to think and, I, and a lot of time to listen to music. And I literally went back and over that period of time, listened to every record I've ever been involved with going back to 1972. Wow. And I, I, and I found myself very frustrated when I listened to the Tangier record, the Company of Wolves record, Black Eyed Susan, a band that I was involved with on Geffen called Illusion back in 85, uh, the Steve Morse records, um, you know, and even some since then, like Failure Anthem a few years ago on, on Razor and Tie. Um, and even now, you know, the new Buck Cherry record is driving me crazy why it's not selling better. Uh, Blacktop Mojo's blowing my mind that the band this good with this kind of vocalist and these kind of songs isn't doing better. Um, so, you know, again, everybody has their list of the ones that got away. And, uh, you know, I sat there and I analyzed, especially now with Buck Cherry, I sit there every day going, what am I missing? Star front man, great songs, live, unbeatable. And mm -hmm. yet we've sold, you know, under 20,000 records worldwide. I don't get it. I don't know well, what's going on. And uh, but even think, back then, I mean, why did why did, you know, certain records and look, even even Cinderella. I mean, I, I told the story about how, you know, in 1985, I put out, you know, five records or six records that I all thought had a shot. None of them did anything. And then here comes Cinderella and sells 150,000 copies the first day and ends up doing 3 million. And it's like, why? You know, and I, I look at other things and I said, you know, Breaking Benjamin, another example of a band that I believe in, the first record ended up doing 185,000 records. And then I thought it was, I was dis totally disappointed by that, especially since I got them a lot of money. And, uh, and then they went and did a second record and uh, it sold 2 million copies. So who knows? I mean, who knows what causes 
certain things to do things and certain things not to do things. I'll, I'll never understand. And that's so, I mean, you can look at every part of the arts. You can look at movies, theater, you know, I'm sure every Broadway show opens thinking it's going to be uh, Vita and it turns out not to be. And every movie thinks it's going to be Star Wars and it turns out not to be. So I don't know. I mean, you know, people well, uh, people's tastes are something that nobody will ever be able to totally lock in on as long as there's time, you know, so. Well, I think also part of the problem with a lot of rock bands in general, let's use Buck Cherry as an example, is people that listen to rock music aren't as dedicated as they used to be. So like Michael is probably one of the, the he has probably the most open mind of, of us on the show as far as listening to different types of music. And he spends a lot of time on Spotify where it will recommend new songs and he'll right. listen. There's a lot of people who just, they would love Hellbound, but they just don't, they don't take the time to listen to it. And it's, it's no different than the local bands. Every time you go see a local band, they, say, they play the same set list. Doesn't matter who the band is. It's always, you know, Sweet Child of Mine, Living on a Prayer, and on and on and on and on. People seem to like what they know, and they just don't have any well, desire. A lot, to a, well, the problem is there's a lot more things now for people to do. Remember, back when yeah. we were growing up, and I'm older than you guys probably, but, um, you know... It was records or nothing. I mean, it was records yep. and that was yeah. it. I mean, there was no yeah. video games. There was no social media. There was no Twitter. There was no Tinder. There was no TikTok. There was no any of this stuff. It was all your life was, if you were a, a, a kid growing up in the 60s, 70s, your life was music. And when you became a fan of the band, you became a fan of the band. And, right. you know, it's it, it just blows my mind today that there isn't that, dedication fan i was telling somebody the other day like i just got to notice that my daily amazon box came with the new red hot chili peppers record i haven't heard a note but i bought it because i'm a fan yeah. of the red hot chili peppers mm -hmm. that's gone those days are gone it's now and like you were talking about spotify spotify for the most part is passive listening i mean i know you know i i talked to even my new young clients and their whole thing is we got to get the playlists well i did a i looked at this i mean you know, playlists are 40, 50, 60 songs. You know, somebody goes in there, goes to work in the morning, they push play. And for the next three hours, these 60 songs play. That's passive listening, whatever. Maybe something will jump out of you or not. But the days of that type of commitment to a band or commitment to the music of a band, those days are gone, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, it's a sad state of affairs. There will never be a gold a legitimate gold record in rock and for the for the remainder of time and i don't think there'll ever be another arena headliner twenty thousand seats in rock for the remainder of time i mean i just don't believe it i think you know i mean give you an example this band dirty honey who i think is a pretty good rock yeah. and roll band mm -hmm. had three number one active rock tracks they did the black crows tour they're out now with that with uh, mama van halen and they've sold twenty three thousand records and remember, SoundScan, when it started back in 91, was based on physical sales. Over time, it's evolved to where SoundScan now encompasses physical sales, digital sales, streaming, video views, et cetera, et cetera. So supposedly 1,500 streams equals one album. I don't know who came up with that formula, but whatever. So again, there's never going to be a legitimate thing i mean uh, the biggest selling rock record right now is by ghost i was just going to ask about who that have done who have done ninety-one thousand <laughs> copies in two weeks of which 
almost 80,000 are physical, but those days are long gone. You know, the drop off from Ghost to everything else, maybe Greta Van Fleet is a little bit under that. But for the most part, rock bands, if they're selling 20, 30,000 records, that's considered a big record nowadays. And, and that's what's sad. And that's why it's hard for me at my point in my life getting up in the morning because back then you knew the business worked on a 97% failure rate, but there still was that chance that a Cinderella or a Breaking Benjamin or whatever would come out and go platinum. And that's yeah. what made, that's what you got you up in the morning. Now you wake up knowing that no matter what you do, at best, you're going to sell 20, 30,000 records. And at best, you're going to be playing large clubs or maybe theaters. But for any band to think they're going to be doing Madison Square Garden, any new band thinks they're going to be doing Madison Square Garden, not a million, it's never going to happen. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to comment on this and say, oh, yeah. you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But no, I'm not. I'm right. I'm, take my word. It'll never happen. Those days are gone. Gold and records for rock bands are never going to happen well, again. And arenas sellouts for rock bands are never going to happen again. And, and, and I, I would like to add to that. That doesn't mean, at least for me, because I agree with what you just said, but that doesn't mean rock is dead because there's still an incredible amount of great rock music being released out there. It's just never going to reach the levels of success. Right. And I'll tell you, and, and, you know, it's funny when Gene, when Gene said that and he got tortured for it and look, I'm the first one to say that this guy does a lot of verbal diarrhea, but when he said it, I said, he's right. And I'm going to tell you why the problem is that, a, we've dumbed it down for the most part. So there is some quality stuff, but there's a lot of garbage. And I think yeah. it's majority of it is garbage. But number two, unfortunately, rock bands forgot what made rock bands arena headliners. Number one is the star factor. And this started back in the grunge period where Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain had this whole anti-star thing. And a lot of bands have forgotten about the star factor you know, when I grew up and when you guys grew up, every band had a star frontman, a guitar hero. Those days are gone. You can't even name a guitar hero in today's generation. If you go to a newsstand and buy a copy of Guitar World or Guitar Player Magazine, I'm going to tell you right now, it's either Eddie Van Halen, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, Joe Bonamassa, Steve Vai, or Eric Clapton. That's who's on the cover of those magazines. There's no new guitar heroes out there. There's no legendary vocalists for the most part out there. And bands have forgot about putting on great live shows, which is why I say that Josh Todd to me is one of the one remaining rock stars out there who still knows how to put on a show. And the other thing, which is sad because I hate it, but when you're in the desert, you got to go where the water is. And social media is the number one driver of fan base today. And again, when I was growing up, the only time you saw Led Zeppelin was when they came to your town. You don't know anything about them, whatever. There was that mystique, which made it even yep. larger than what it really was. But now a guy eats a tuna sandwich at 12 o'clock. The whole world knows he ate a tuna sandwich at 12.01. And the whole mystique of rock is gone. And, uh, you know, it's a world of pop and hip hop because they embrace social media. And rock bands, for the most part, have not done social media properly. I often tell the story with Lamb of God. For the 10 years I managed Lamb of God, any post you saw from any member of Lamb of God was a guy named Jason Leckberg, their product manager at Epic, who I would feed things to and he would post as a member of Lamb of God. Those guys never posted, still don't for the most part post. And that's a part of the problem is that pop and hip hop people embraced social media from day one. 
And you have to hold a gun to the head of a lot of most rock ox today to understand that you have to post every day. If you look at Buck Cherry, we do a post seven days a week, yep. nonstop. Every day we're posting something different. Now we're, we're repeating certain things like our upcoming headline tour, the Al Cooper tour, or our t-shirts are for sale or our VIPs are for sale. But there is a post seven days a week from Buck Cherry. And that's how you got to compete nowadays. I hate it because I believe in mystique. But again, I can quit and go sit on my couch or I can try and still do what I'm doing. And to do that, right. you have to play the game, which is social media. Larry, I, 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 I still think kids are going to eventually get sick of the mumble rap. Seriously. I, I mean, at some point, there's going to be a pushback to that. And there just is. It, it's uh, no different than with the hair metal thing. Eventually, I, I, I have, I have. Again, I look at numbers and I see a rock band puts out a, a new track and maybe they have a million streams. Drake puts out a new track. There's a hundred million streams in the same 24 hours. I, I, I don't see it because you're going to remember something. You know, kid. You know, kids are bought what they're sold. And if you're 14, 15 years old, just getting into music, who's communicating with you? The pop and the hip hop acts are coming right to your door. The rock acts, for the most part, are not coming to your door. So, what are you going to go? I, I, go I can to I can attest to that. To you, you, you know, know, I got an eight-year-old daughter. You know, and as much as I've taken her to see Kiss and will play rock music, the music she's being given through YouTube and her video games and Roblox and Minecraft, it ain't rock. No. It's not rock. And it's sad. Well, it's I sad. Still it's very, very sad. I, still, I only thank, I only thank I God I lived when I lived. <laughs> because yeah. if I was doing it today, I would not be in this business. I would not in a million I years. I still think there's young bands like Starcrawler out of L.A., total star power on that that female singer. She, you know, she's the shit, man. I, 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 I still think eventually kids... And again, it may not be in, in even the rest of my lifetime, but I do think there's going to be a pushback. That shit that's coming out now, I'm a musician. I, it's terrible. And again, I call it mumble rap. It's, but, you know. but, but, but Mark, well, I, I, have mean, a, I have a new band. I have a new band called Kingdom Collapse that we're doing independently, just like I'm doing Blacktop Mojo independently. The song right now called Save Me From Myself is the number one played song on Octane. Number one. And we're at 100,000 streams in almost a month. Horrible compared to the hip hop. Drake. Yeah, compared to well, so, But can't, but can't not everybody's Drake either. Huh? Not everybody's Drake on the other side of the fence either. I mean. Uh, but there's a, there's a, a lot of these hip hop are selling big numbers. I mean, I, big, I, big I'm not going to dispute that. But also, I, I was listening to an, another music podcast Um uh, it's a local one here in Detroit, and they were. It was a great new study, though. How uh, like I'm, there was the one that was the, and, and I'm not good at this, the Takeshi guy or Takeshi, whatever that, who a couple years ago, selling a lot, streaming a lot. Kids tend to, kids don't, kids today don't tend to be how we were when we were kids. When you when we were Led Zeppelin fans, we were Led Zeppelin fans for life. Kids today, the music's a lot more disposable. Well, my counter argument to that is Doritos will make yeah, okay. more. Yeah. Will make some more. When he goes away, there's 20 more behind them. 
right now there's not a major label if you go back and look at the major label columbia records warner brothers records atlantic records etc the major labels they have zero interest in signing a rock band if i was out shopping a band today it would be to sumerian metal blade e1 you know etc mm -hmm. there there's there's you can't even take a rock band to a major label today. they're not the least bit interested to them their attitude is they'd rather go on TikTok, find a kid that's rapping that they'll pay a million dollars to, but they'll make it back in a day and a half between rap streaming and, uh, you know, downloads, excuse me, and whatever. I mean, if you look every week on SoundScan with these hip hop records, 99% of the sales are streaming calculations, not physical albums. Right. Very few are physical albums. That's why the ghost was such an anomaly doing 67,000 physical the first week, which really blew me away because that gave me a breath of maybe, maybe. But, but I don't see. But and again, why? I was, I was, my life is half over, but <laughs> I will tell you guys that in the second half of my life that you will not see another rock band become an arena headliner or have a gold record. And I will defy anybody to challenge that. I mean, but I think why I, that, that's right because it, it, it's all a today it's all about business it's all about money more than it's ever been and to your point larry if one band one hip-hop artist one one musician burns out this year there's six more ready to go because they know there's money to be made there well you asked you just won't even ask them about ghost and it's kind of funny yeah. you know it's really interesting because image wise Anybody who's familiar goes image wise, you would think it's a metal band because they've right. got the mask, you know, to them, you know, it's again, it's a, it's a playoff of slip. Well, Alice Cooper, kiss, Slipknot, slip yeah. you know, uh, Mudvayne, motionless and white and now ghost, you know, but what's amazing is if you look at it, you think it's a metal band. If you yeah. listen to the record, it's journey. Yeah. <laughs> This it's guy's a, got a pure Steve Perry type voice. The songs are pop rock songs. I mean, it's Journey, but the image, because of the mass and the whole concept, you know, whatever. So look, Ramstein's another one. Ramstein could sell out Madison Square Garden because they just came upon that gimmick of the whole pyro with the guy with the flamethrower and everything. Look, those bands always will find a way to do a left turn around the mainstream. But okay. again, since 2014, when Spotify really was introduced, Greta Van Fleet is really the only band that has, quote, broken. And I don't, we'll see how long that goes. But I mean, that's really the only band that's broken since 2014. And it's just a sad state of affairs. It's, it's very depressing. I mean, like I said, between, you know, my new young bands, Blacktop Mojo and Now Kingdom Collapse, I think I've got two killer bands with great vocalists, great songs, and, uh, I'm pulling my remaining hair out every day. You know? Yeah, so, Blacktop Mojo is amazing. They really are. And I and I said that. This to guy's Matt. Bad, one of the greatest vocalists I've ever heard. And yeah. it just kills me. You know? I remember the first time we saw him was at a festival a number of years ago. And my friend Kyle was there shooting too. We both just stood there with our jaws on the floor, like, holy shit. Twin lead guitars. Are... Yeah, twin lead guitars in the style of Thin Lizzy. Great yep. vocalist with an ungodly voice, great songs. Um, and, uh, you know, they did a couple covers dream on has like 20 million streams and they did in the air tonight has 20 million streams. And we just did an acoustic version of my girl by the temptations which for Valentine's cool. day, which is very cool. 
which is just vocal and acoustic guitar, which is very cool. But again, I mean, you know, what's it going to sell? I mean, the last record did 14,000 copies. I mean, I, you know, it's just, it's depressing. It's really depressing. So but I don't can, know. Well, can these, can these, can these bands establish enough of a following and have a cheap trick type career? Sure. I mean, look, I mean, again, as a manager, you look, your goal is to make as much money and be as successful as possible. But right. I've resigned myself to the fact that if I can get this band to being these two, two new young bands to being headline club attractions, making a decent amount of money that clubs will pay, sell a bunch of T-shirts. I mean, Blacktop Mojo does $20 a head live when they tour, which is ungodly for a band to do that amazing. kind of money on merchandise. Yep. Yeah, um, that's amazing. Yeah, but so yeah, if I could, if if these bands and they'll work the Larry Mazer way, which is a couple hundred dates per cycle, they can make a living and have a nice living for the rest of their lives. Are they going to get Good. Rolling Stones rich or Led Zeppelin rich? No. no, but can a rock band if they do the work and go out there and put on a live great show, make great albums, and commit to touring and and take into the people? Can they make a living as this is their chosen career? absolutely but you Good. gotta play the game you gotta make you gotta be great live you gotta make great records and much to my chagrin you've got to commit to social media you just yeah. have to. it's true because i think that people want to get to know the the artists that they um represent or or follow because a lot of people still think that all these bands live together in one house like the monkeys you know, Black Mojo did, by the way, until recently when two guys had kids and then they moved, they, broke, they separated. But Black Top Mojo did live in one house. But. Okay. Well, so then they're the, they're the exception to the rule. But I, yeah. people want to see behind the curtain. That's why the social media thing is such a big deal. Yeah. But to me, again, I like Mystique. I, I yes. just, I like yeah. that, uh, you know, when Led Zeppelin came to town, there was, it was just the circus is coming to town. It was just, you right. know, or any of those bands, Black Sabbath, you know, whenever those bands came that I was fans of, it was like, oh my God, you go to school next day and say, I got a ticket. I'm going to go see them live. And, you know, mm -hmm. so anyway. Oh yeah. And I, believe me, I'm with you on that because for me, it's the mystique that kept people interested. It's yeah. the mystique that built that up, like you said, larger than actually what it was. And it gave, it made you so much more involved in what, you know, being a part of it. Now it's just disposable to a certain yeah. degree. Any other you fan know. questions, Mike? Uh, yeah, I got one more here, and this actually touches on a number of bands. Okay. So, Kenner, Kenner Clarkston, um, were you with Cinderella when they played Moscow Music Peace Festival? Absolutely. And were you over there? Absolutely. Any stories you want to share? Well, there's been a lot written about it. Um, so, basically... Um, and this is not a, a law. I mean, this is not a, a, a hidden fact. So John Bon, jo bon Jovi's manager, Doc McGee, yep. had gotten arrested as one of the biggest marijuana importers, which is written about, and he's writing his autobiography now. So he'll probably talk about more in detail. Um, and part of his sentence was he had to do X amount of community service. So uh, Bon Jovi's record, New Jersey, had been released in Russia because um, all the labels were trying to make inroads into Russia at that point in time. Um, and he came up with the idea of doing this concert to, quote, benefit drug programs around the world, et cetera, and came up with the name of the Moscow Peace Festival. Um, it was Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Scorpion, Cinderella, Skid Row, 
a Russian band called Gorky Park who'd gotten signed to Mercury and Mercury. and uh, and was building some momentum. And I think that was it. Um, yeah. We all flew out of Newark Airport um, and uh, first stop was London where we picked up Ozzy Osbourne's band. Then we stopped in Germany to pick up the Scorpions then flew to Moscow. Um, it was a week. We got there on, I think, Tuesday. The shows were Saturday and Sunday. We came home on Monday. Uh, the plane ride was uh, an adventure, which uh, you could read about many books. I don't need to go into it in detail, but it was wild. Um, and Moscow, remember, this was still the Soviet Union, which, of course, Vladimir Putin is trying to rebuild as we speak. Um, and 75,000 people a day at the Moscow Olympic Stadium. Um, it was uh, like being in 1920s Cleveland. It was gray the whole time. Uh, we did a lot of touristy stuff, saw the Kremlin, saw some other stuff. Um, MTV was there, did a lot of coverage of the whole week. Um, the shows were great. Uh, unfortunately, the second show, um, the deal was that everybody was gonna be equal. Um, and unfortunately, Bon Jovi came out and as soon as they walked on stage, pyro went off like it was July 4th. And as everybody who's read books knows, uh, at that point, Tommy Lee punched Doc McGee and fired him uh, as the manager of Motley Crue. Uh, they got their own way home, did not come back on the plane and fired Doc and then went with his partner, Doug Thaler, for management. But uh, it was a great week. Um, I'm glad I did it. And you knew that this thing was not going to last. You had kids coming up to you. They had never seen this kind of freedom. People were coming up and offering to buy your jeans off your body. I mean, that's how desperate they were for the Western stuff. And I'll never forget, I went home and um, said to my wife that uh, I predict that within five years, there will no, be no more Soviet Union. These kids are not going to stand for this and they're going to bring it down. And I was wrong. It happened in three years. Um, but it was, it was a, one of the great experiences of my life. I'm glad I did it. Um, the funniest thing was, I'll never forget, they interviewed Ozzy Osbourne and he said, and they said to him, and this was Ozzy at his funniest, they said to him, can you sort of describe what it's like being here? And with his normal Ozzy straight face said, well, he said, let's pretend that you're home and you're watching TV and you're hungry and you call for pizza. And if the pizza isn't there in 20 minutes, you get very upset. Well, over here, they're still waiting for their pizza. And I thought that was one of the greatest lines of all time. Ozzy. Because oh we literally went to this mall and it was empty shelves. I mean, there was nothing. I mean, it was obviously that, you know, this was not a place that any of us would want to live at the time. You know, not that we want to live there now, but yeah. at the time it was definitely... Uh, you know, a different kind of society, but it was, it was, I look back on it as uh, one of the greatest weeks of my life. I really loved every second of it. So, um, so Kenner asks, how is it working with Nelson? Okay. So. Oh, this could be interesting. Just looking at how you're going to answer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make sure I have all the facts straight. <laughs> so, uh, Nelson, um, so I was very close to John Kalander, the head of A&R at Geffen. And I had had a couple artists sign him at the time. 
Um, and he said, I know you're a Prague fan. Uh, I'm doing something, I'm developing something with Jeff Downs who had just, who had left, Asia had broken up and Jeff Downs was thinking about what he was gonna do next. He goes, would you be interested in maybe working with Jeff Downs? I said, absolutely. I was a Buggles fan. I was a Yes fan. I'm an Asia fan. Absolutely. I flew to London to the legendary AdVision studios where all those great Yes, Emerson and Palmer records were made. And we're talking, whatever. And he goes, he goes, hey, John sent me this thing to see if I'd be interested in songwriting with it. Are you familiar with it? It's called Nelson. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know who they were. I said, no, I never heard it. He goes, well, let me play a couple of things. So he played me a couple of songs and literally my head exploded. And I called John, I said, why did you not tell me about this? He goes, well, they have management. And you know, again, there's, there's a manager in place and whatever. I said, this is unbelievable. So anyway, Jeff and I stayed friendly, but I flew home and I went to LA. And um, this is when I had opened an LA office, which I had for two years. And that's a whole different story, which we'll do on a subsequent thing. That's ours. Um, anyway, so the girl that I hired as my assistant, who ironically was Vivian Campbell's wife, who was with Dio and then and was in Whitesnake at that time. Now he's with Def Leppard. And she had, was working at Capitol Records and I hired her to be my assistant. And we were talking one day and she said, oh, I'm very close to him. That's Ricky Nelson's twin sons. And I said, you're kidding. And she goes, no, would you like to meet him? I said, well, I hear they have a manager. She goes, well, I don't know if they're that happy with it. And they're huge Cinderella fans. They love Cinderella. I want to set up, a, I'll set up a dinner. So we went to Dan Tana's, which is a famous Italian restaurant on Melrose Avenue next to the Troubadour or Santa Monica Boulevard next door to the Troubadour. And I told them how much I love their music. I'd love to work with them, but I know they had management. They said, well, we're not really happy, but we are committed, blah, blah, blah. And I said, all right, well, look, if anything I can ever do for you, I'd love to do it. And um, a week later, I get a thank you letter from them and saying that, uh, listen, we really love it, you know, everything you've done. And uh, would you possibly be interested in talking to our manager? He's Australian and seeing if maybe something could happen with the two of them. I said, all right, well, whatever, I'll take the meeting. We had the meeting. And uh, after the meeting, uh, a week later, they called me and said, well, you know what? We want you to be our manager. We're going to sever with them. We'll make a settlement, et cetera. And they were signed, already signed at Geffen. Uh, they were already making the record. Um, so the record was done. And I'll never forget, I went to Del Ferrano at Winterland, um, who um, I did Kiss With for merchandising. I played him the record. He said, I got to have this. What do you want? I said, I want a million dollars. He said, you got it. Then the next day, I called my friend Jody Gerson, who's now head of Universal Publishing, who worked at that time for Charles Koppelman at EMI Publishing. And I said, I want to play this record I've got. They're looking, we have the publishing's available. I played her the record. She flipped out. She called Charles, played him the record. He flipped out. He had just done a deal with Wilson Phillips, which you know is the daughters of Brian Wilson and John and Phillips from the Mamas and Papas. So he flipped out. He said, I got to have this. What do you want? I said, I want a million dollars. He said, you got it. So in the first week of managing the band, I made them $2 million. Um, and record was done. Uh, we did, did the video for Love and Affection. Uh, it went boom, right to number one on the pop charts. Booked a tour, which started in 91 of, uh, I think it was six weeks of theaters. Everyone sold out in a minute. 
Uh, we did Universal Amphitheater, which was 6,000 seats. We sold that out in 10 minutes. Um, and unfortunately, I made them too famous and too rich too fast uh, because it went right to their heads. They started spending money like there was no tomorrow. The shows were incredible, but the problem, two things happened. One, they got caught up in their own bullshit, basically, and that's why the relationship ended before the second record. But the biggest problem was that just as the record, the record was platinum on its way to double platinum, and David Geffen sold Geffen Records to MCA. And what happened was Warner Brothers was so pissed off that he had sold the records, the label to MCA, that they pulled all Geffen Records out of record stores for, I think, at least a month. So basically, the sales on all Geffen Records stopped. And the record still found its way to get to two million. But at that point, the karma sort of turned. Um, I also was about to do the Heartbreak Station tour, couldn't find quality support. So I talked to Tom. I said, I want to put Nelson on. He goes, are you kidding? Nelson was Cinderella. I said, let me take you to a show. We flew to Chicago. And they saw, I sold them at a sold out show. And he said, okay, they're doing great business. A lot of girls. That'd be good. We put them as direct support. We put Lynch Mob as the opening act. As everybody knows, the Heartbreak Station album didn't do well. Uh, the tour bombed. And then I went back and put Nelson back on a headline tour, which lasted another month or so. And then it was time to start doing a second record. They wanted to self-produce, which John Clarner was not into. And then the brothers were really out of their minds with ego. And, uh, and the relationship ended. And uh, so it was a very exciting uh, six months. And, uh, but unfortunately, I just couldn't take their unrealistic reality of where they were in the business after one album and uh and parted ways but it was uh it was fun while it lasted and live they were pretty spectacular i mean it was an amazing live show and i'll never forget being at uh radio C uh, radio city and then the universal amphitheater and, and watching six thousand people losing their minds and uh gene and paul came to the universal amphitheater show and uh it was pretty exciting and uh i got to meet their grandmother the legendary harriet nelson from ozzy and harriet and that was kind of nice. exciting so you know, and uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was fun for a very short period. It was of time, a flash but, in the pan. But when it was fun, it was fun. And, yeah, I, uh, I saw I saw that tour go. in Milwaukee. They were with House of Lords, I think. It was the well, it was the package was Nelson, Enough's Enough and House of Lords. That was okay. the package. Okay. As a matter of fact, I reminded Chips Enough on the Monsters of Rock Cruise that I gave him his first tour. So, yeah. As well from as, Chicago as well, up to Milwaukee. As well as reminding that. Dana Strum and Mark Slaughter, I gave them their first tour, and reminding Kip Winger, I gave him his first tour. So there you go. So, so, so two but, other quick bands to get. A well, quick did you enjoy the show? Of. You swim it. The show you the show you saw. Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I mean, I was a huge House of Lords fan. That that debut album right. that they put out was great. And yeah, I mean, if if that was your style of music back then, everybody was loving Nelson for yeah. that yeah. summer. If that, yeah. You know, that, yeah it was the that, backstreet it was the backstreet boys before the backstreet boys exactly know, so, yeah <laughs> um so all three of us here huge lifelong cheap trick fans okay. talk about talk about uh working with those guys well ironically those two things tie together um house of lords was managed by the same guy who managed cheap trick ken adamani mm -hmm. uh, and the tour manager was a guy named mike hurl and i got very friendly with mike on that tour 
and he loved watching me do my magic on that tour with the Nelson record and how I interacted with promoters and whatever. And at the time, which I didn't know, Cheap Trick was firing Ken Adamani and suing him for misappropriation of funds, et cetera, et cetera. And he called me one day and he said, hey, listen, would you be interested in Cheap Trick? And I think I, I, I don't remember if we discussed Did we talk about this at all in the last time, the Cheap Trick being mm -hmm. in Philly story or? No, you know, that, no. Okay. We didn't, Let no. me go backwards to go forwards. So back in 1972, when I first started managing recording acts in partnership with another guy before I, you know, for the next act, and then I went to college and everything, but Cheap Trick uh, at that point wasn't Cheap Trick. They, they all lived in Philadelphia uh, and they worked at a bar that was one block from where my office was in downtown Philadelphia and lived literally right across the street from where my office was. Um, and at that point, they had a band called Sick Man of Europe, and the singer was Stuky, who prior to that was the lead singer of the group Naz, Todd Rundgren's band. And anyway, so they, they were a Philly band, whatever, and then they decided to move back to Illinois. And when they got there, they decided that Stuky wasn't the right singer, and they hired Robin Zander, and they became Cheap Trick. So I was a huge fan. I saw the very first show they played here, which was at a club in Wilmington, Delaware, called The Other Side. And I just was a massive fan from day one. So when Mike called me and he said, would you be interested? I said, I'm on the next plane. So I flew out, went to Rick Nielsen's house. And um, they had been, they, after, after being with uh, Epic, they had been with uh, Warner Brothers for the Woke Up With A Monster record. Um, yep. And they had gotten dropped because the record wasn't successful. And, you know, over the years, Tom Peterson left the fan, then he came back in the band. They had the big hit with the flame, which I hated and et cetera, et cetera. So they didn't have a label. I flew, we, we met at Rick's house and I said, look, you're my favorite. And they were my favorite rock and roll band. You were my number one, my favorite rock and roll band. It would be an honor to work with you guys. Um, they said, can we check you out? I said, absolutely. They, they went out, they called a bunch of people that I knew, that they knew, and they called me and hired me. So I went out to shop and unfortunately, they were not thought of that highly anymore because they had had a number of, the last record on Epic busted, didn't do well. And then obviously uh, woke up with a monster, didn't do well. Uh, and some idiot at Warner's got them to change the legendary logo, which I thought was ridiculous. Um, so I shopped them around um, and I booked a tour uh, without a record just because they wanted to work and they needed money to pay for the lawsuit. And I get my lawyer at the time, a guy named Paul Schindler called me. He said, hey, look, I represent this label called Castle Records. Um, would you be willing to take a medium? They love Cheap Trick. Anyway, so I did some research and realized that Castle was really a catalog label based in the UK, but they wanted to become a frontline label in America. So they hired this guy named Steve Lerner to be the president. And he called me and he said, look, would you, you're, they're playing in New York tomorrow night at a club. Would you be willing to come in for a meeting during the day so we could make you our pitch? So I said, sure. So I went up and I walked in and it was very bizarre because the floor of their offices were all checkerboard. 
you know, which was a very famous cheap mm -hmm. trick thing from Rick's yeah. Farther, I think. And I'm sitting there going, that's kind of weird. And then all of a sudden, all the employees at the company are, I'm watching them as I'm sitting there in the waiting room. And this obviously had all been choreographed before I got there. So they had all the employees walk by me and everyone was wearing a cheap trick t-shirt and wearing a button that said, I want you, we want you to want us. Nice. That's creative. And I said, this is brilliant. So I go and meet this guy, Steve Lerner, who I didn't know from Adam. And he pitched me, he said, look, we have a ton of money, you know, and we really want this band. We, we want to be a frontline label. We haven't signed anybody. They will get the full pressure of the label. And uh, I said, uh, okay, I want a half a million dollars. He said, you got it. So I went back to the club where the band was playing. I said, you're not going to believe this. I told him the whole story from beginning to end. And they said, let's meet the guy. He came and uh, took them everybody out to dinner and uh, wooed them over and we signed. Anyway, so we, we start making the record in Long Island, in Glen Cove, Long Island, at the studio called uh, Pie Studios, owned by a producer named Perry Margulief. He didn't produce the record. They wanted to work with Ian Taylor, who was Roy Thomas Baker's engineer. So we're making the record. It's, the songs are great. I'm on cloud nine. And I get a call one day from Steve Lerner saying, I'm leaving. I said, what? Ugh. He goes, well, Ugh. before I worked here, I worked for this distributor in Long Island named a guy's named Alan Becker. And he's starting a label and he wants me to run the label and I'll have equity here. I'm an employee, but they'll have equity. But I want to take Cheap Trick with me. I said, well, come along on and meet with the band. Is this anyway, Red Ant? I'm getting to that. Okay. Be All patient, right. please. Okay. All right. <laughs> Tell the story. You got to do it on my time. See, you here. don't, yeah, but you don't know how big of a cheap trick fan right, I am. So well, this is yeah, awesome. I'll cover, you'll, you'll get all yeah. your information. So just relax. So anyway, so Steve takes him out. And at that point he said, and we're, the label is going to be called Grass Records. Don't ask me why, but it's going to be called Grass Records. And the guys say, okay, we'll, 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 we'll we, we like you. We'll stick with you. Fair. Okay. So at that point, what turned out was the next week, Castle is sold to this new label called Red Ant, which is run by Al Teller, who had been president of MCA and left, and Randy Phillips, who was Rod Stewart's manager, and had left that company, and he managed Tony Braxton and a few other things, but left to do this new label with Al Teller. All right. So he calls me up and he goes, hi, this is my name's Randy Phillips. I'm running and, you know, we're now looking at all the assets that uh, Castle Records have. And, uh, you know, we notice you have Cheap Trick signed there. And I got to be honest, I'm not don't know that much about the group. It's not my world. And I said, well, look, Randy, to be honest with you, we really would rather go with Steve Lerner. If you don't mind, we would like a release so that we could sign with Steve Lerner because he's really passionate about Cheap Trick. And we would really like to go with him. And he goes, well, I'm unopposed. Um, so let me talk to my guys here and uh, we'll see what we can do for you. So I felt great. I said, okay, great. I called Steve. I said, hey, I think we'll be able to move, but we got to go through the steps because we don't have a contract, whatever. Anyway, so it turns out that Randy Phillips then calls his staff together. And his head of A&R was a guy named Jason Bernard, who has since gone on to work with... Uh, I forget the name, a top producer, uh, and they started the company. I forget, that, it's not important. 
And he goes, okay, let's review the Castle roster, blah, 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 drop, 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 drop. Oh, and they have cheap trick. I'm going to drop them. And Jason Bernard, supposedly, and I wasn't there, I'm getting it secondhand, but supposedly Jason Bernard stood up in a meeting and said, are you out of your mind? That is one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all day. If you drop them, I'm quitting. And I can tell you probably everybody here is quitting. So the next day I get a call for Randy Phillips saying, well, we might have an issue. I'm going to fly in. I want to hear the record. I said, okay, no problem. So he flies in. And unfortunately, he heard the record and <laughs> realized what he had and said, uh, sorry, I'm not letting you go. Mm. So, all right. So we stayed there. Now, the side story is Steve Lerner starts his label, which then changes the name to Wind Up. And of course, they sign Creed, Evanescence, Seether, and become a legendary label. And I'm with Red Ant, who we make this great record. And in the meantime, I had done the box set with Epic, Sex, Drugs, and Cheap Trick, which was a great, incredible box set. Um, also reissued the first three records with bonus tracks, the whole thing. And so we put out the first song, Say Goodbye, which I thought was a smash. Love it. Um, but ironically, their promotion staff wasn't able to get really with it. And then one day I heard through the grapevine that Red Ant, who had signed a ton of bands and spent a ton of money, was going bankrupt. That they were financed by a Wall Street hedge fund called Wasserman and Perella, and they weren't happy with the way things were going and decided to pull their financing. So they go into Chapter 11. And basically, you know, and what happened was, so I come out, so the record comes out, I get the... I, I, well, I, I, I call this guy, Steve, Steve, Steve Stewart, who manages Stone Temple Pilots. And I hear Stone Temple Pilots are going on sale. And I said to the guys, listen, we've got to become a 90s band, a 2000s band. Well, this is 95. So we got to become a 90s band. You can't no longer go out with the classic rock bands. I've got to open up the horizon. <clears throat> so... I cold call this guy, Steve Steven, Steve Stewart. And I said, hey, listen, I'd like to submit Cheap Trick for Stone Temple Pilots. And he goes, well, you know, they're really into the cool. But I said, look, do me a favor. We're playing the House of Blues on Friday. Come with me to the show in Los yeah. Angeles and see for yourself. Place is sold out. Band is off the charts. Halfway through the shirt, show turns to me and says, you got it. So the first thing I delivered was the Stone Temple Pilots tour. Unfortunately, even though I thought it was the coolest thing on earth, um, the uh, fans of Stone Bumble Pilots looked at them like they were from Mars. And the response was tepid at best. So we did that tour. Then I got them the ZZ Top tour. And then after that, I got them the Motley Crue tour. Um, and that was great. Everything was great. Unfortunately, the entire time they were involved with this lawsuit with Ken Adamani, and it was draining their bank account to like poverty level. And I could tell there was some friction with, you know, as always with these veteran bands. I mean, I talked about with Kiss and with other people. Unfortunately, they called me one day and they said, look, you know, you're making good money. 
we're making good money on the road, but unfortunately it's paying for the lawsuit. And uh, I could see the writing on the wall. And uh, again, as with a lot of veteran bands that just, you know, are on their heels at that time of their career, they wanted to cut my commission and uh, I won't do it. So uh, unfortunately with my favorite band of all time, I parted ways and you know, there you go. And there's the, well, entire, and the entire story. But again, how do I talk? How do I tell other clients that are paying me full commission? I'm giving this yeah, you break. Can't. I can't do it. And it's again, just like I, real I estate. Back, I was very, uh, this one really affected me. I was heartbroken because I wasn't fired because of the job I did, because I delivered, got them a yeah. big record deal, got Rick a brand new publishing deal for a lot of money, delivered three great tours, but they were literally draining money at such a pace with this Ken Amai lawsuit, which lasted my entire two and a half years that, uh, you know, they felt they had a cut bait and uh, they then picked up this manager who I won't talk about and who uh, offered to manage him for free. And he did for the next X amount of years until they fired him for stealing money. So there you go. Well, and, and for those of you that are listening or watching, this is quite possibly the greatest cheap trick record ever made. And so it's the self-titled cheap trick record from 1997. It has a black and white cover with well, just- Well, let, let me interrupt you real quick. So when it kind of came time to do the artwork, I said, listen, I want to do something cool. First of all, we got to bring back the, the original logo, which we did. I said, but what made the, and remember the first three records, well, up until, you know, before Budokan, the first three records I think are perfect records from beginning mm -hmm. to end. There's not a speck of cereal yeah. in my mind on those three records. But what was cool, the whole image and what was unique about Cheap Trick was you had on the front cover, the two pretty boys yep. on the back cover, the two bizarre looking guys. Yeah. So I said, I want to do a takeoff on the first three records. So if you remember that album cover, the front cover was Robin's guitar and Tom's bass. Yep. And the back cover was Rick's guitar and Bunny's drums. These drums. And as it paid homage to those first three classic Cheap Trick records. Again. Yeah. And so, well, I just want to make sure that if you guys are out there listening and you want to check this out, which one it is. So it's it's called the self-titled one right. from 97. And I, I'm sure it's on Spotify or you yes. can find it used. I it's highly available. recommend it. You can still buy it on Amazon. There you go. To get out and get it because it's amazing. Great Arguably Great their record. best album. Arguably, yeah. arguably, after the first three in Dream Police, I think their best album. Yep. Because it's got Carnival Games, Say Goodbye, Eight miles, eight miles low. Yes. Anytime. It, it, it's good. It, yeah. Am I one? And like, like yeah. I told you guys with my kiss story from last time about Gene sticking his tongue out and telling him I refused to let him stick his tongue out. My, my here, my rule here was that while I was managing a band, they were forbidden from ever playing the flame, which they never did. But as soon as they stopped working with me, the flame was back in the set. But to me, it was everything that was the beginning of the end of Cheap Trick because it was a big hit, made the record lap of luxury platinum. But I think it destroyed Rick Nielsen's confidence because their A&R guy said, Rick, you don't write great songs anymore. We have to get outside songwriters. And I think it's bullshit. I think yep. it took two. Yeah, but look at all the until, It took until this particular record that we talked about for Rick Nielsen to again become the great songwriter that he was. Aerosmith and Hart suffered the same problem same thing. to me. Well, ironically, Hart had the same A&R guy, Don Grierson, who's no longer with us. So I can say his name. But Don Grierson was the same A&R guy who told Hart, you can't write songs anymore either. So there you go. 
Oh, Larry, Larry, one last band, and, and then we'll. And I've got to bounce, and I've got to bounce because yeah. I got to shoot corrosion of conformity and ministry tonight. All right, so Tommy, so, you run, yep. and we'll wrap up with one last band, okay. Larry. Have you, a good. You. By the way, have a good time tomorrow night or Thursday night, Tom. Thursday, I will, and I'll follow up with you. Thanks, Larry, for All everything. Right. Bye, guys. Uh, take care, Tommy. Last question, Larry. Union. Okay, so. Kiss, so Bruce and Eric get fired from Kiss or laid off, whatever you want to call it, laid off, fired, whatever. And Bruce and I become very, very close. And he said to me, he called me one day and said, I'm thinking of putting together a band with John Karabi, who I knew from, he was a Philly guy and had been the lead singer of The Scream, but was very mm -hmm. close to the Cinderella guys. Sent me demos and I fell in love with it. Um, and I had been friendly with a guy named Paul Bebo, who was head, yeah. head of A&R at... Um, Spitfire? No, before that. Before no, Spitfire uh, no, was. No, no, the label that Paul Peter Fram that I did Peter Frampton with. Um, oh, my God. Uh, Relativity. Re yeah, okay. Head of A&R Relativity, where I had Peter Frampton in the early 90s. And uh, I became very close to Paul. And Paul called me one day and he said, uh, he said, oh, I heard these demos. I'm now with uh, Mark Puma, who is the manager of Twisted Sister. We have a label called Mayhem. Thank we'd you, like yeah. to sign we'd like to sign um union so i went to bruce and john i said look they have real money which they did and uh they're passionate so let's do it so we did the first record and once again mayhem ran out of money halfway through then paul said well i've got this new situation called spitfire and then the second record excuse me which is called the blue room uh we did on spitfire but uh we did a one tour that i i think we only did one tour and again uh after the two records, it just, and we did a live record and a DVD, but it, uh, it just didn't go the distance. But again, two records I'm very proud of. And again, based upon the pedigree of Bruce and John, don't know why they didn't do better. Being on a small independent label that ran out of money was probably part of it. But again, one of those records, those two records that I still listen to with a lot of enjoyment and don't understand why they weren't bigger. And ironically, when I saw John on the Monsters of Rock Cruise, I told him and I called Bruce and I said, you know, maybe you guys should think about doing another union record. And it's a discussion uh, I intend to have further with uh, Bruce when I see him on the Kiss Cruise in October. Good. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, that band was so incredibly talented. Yes. I felt like it was just like so much music at that time. Great music. Wrong time. It was yeah. wrong place. Wrong time. It was just never going to be accepted by the music public at that point in time a guy from kiss and a guy from motley Crue. all oh, those are those are grandpa bands okay well that first record's dynamite I, yep. yeah blue room i could yeah that was just okay but i thought the first one was really really good yeah i like both of them i like and the second one was done by oh. bob marlett who's become a very successful producer and i really like him a lot and uh i'm proud of look i'm well, listen i'm proud of every record i've ever put out i mean so Again, you know, more non-successful and successful. Luckily, the successful ones were really successful. But uh, I, like I said, over COVID, I listened literally to every record I've put out and been associated with since 1972. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of every one of them. There's so not one let, let me, let me, let, go, that was terrible. You know? let, let's part with this. So after okay. listening to all of the records you were involved with, give our listeners one album that you were like, Man, I completely forgot how incredible this was. So our listeners can go check it out. Oh, damn. There's probably 30 of them. I, I literally couldn't do that. I literally, 
couldn't do that. I mean, one of the records that's artistically my favorite of my entire career, which none of your listeners would know anything about, is a band called Vertu, V-E-R-T-U, which is Stanley Clark and Lenny White from Return of Forever, um, and Karen Briggs on violin, who would play with Yanni, uh, Rachel Z on keyboards, who play with Al Demiola, because I'm a fusion guy. That's where I first started back when I started in 1972 was Ma No Orchestra, Return of Forever, Weather Report. That's what I listened to. Um, and I put Richie Kotzen in as a guitarist because Alan Holdsworth was the original guitarist. He didn't want to stick with it. So I put Richie Kotzen in, made one record, did one European tour. But musically, personally, that's the record I'm most proud of that speaks to me musically. Uh, but as far as your audience, I mean, look, I mean, Revenge, Long Cold Winter. Um, I still love Richie Kotzen's Motherhead Family Reunion record. I love the Cheap Trick record we just talked about. Um, I, I can't pick one. I really can't. I mean, Fair there's enough. probably 20 that I, I, I sit there and go, why wasn't this ginormous? I mean, you know, and I don't get it, but. You need to make a Spotify playlist of all of, of the all songs of your records. Yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> I know I'd maybe listen. One, maybe someday when I have spare time again. I'll <laughs> there do. you go. Anyway, Larry, this again. Well, I look forward. I look forward to reading all the comments. I'm sure there's going to be some negatives in there. That I'll probably go back on the antidepressants again as I read the negative comments. But exactly, the the expert will enjoy the, this one. Like the ex expert the music managers and, uh, out yeah. there that are going to tell us how to properly manage bands, right? Mm. Oh, and Larry, by the way, Larry, I will be in LA on the Kiss Cruise as well. I look forward to meeting you and we'll uh, having out. dinner. Well, but what else are we going to do for five days? So exactly. absolutely. You know, by the way, I don't know. I will mention to you not to toot my own horn, but I will mention to you that there's a great magazine now in the UK called Rock Candy. Uh, and it, it's available at Barnes and Noble here in the States. It's only the only place you get it is by subscription or online or on Barnes and Noble. But the last issue, which was the March, well, the current issue, but it's a bi-monthly, which has Kiss on the cover, does have a seven page feature uh, about me in there. <laughs> Uh, which I'm very proud of. And uh, so if anybody wants to read that and get even more stories, there's a lot in there. So, yep, anyway. Yeah, I, I, I do some work with the Rock Candy team. and We know, we, that's why, as a matter of fact, the round table we did, yep, uh, there Howard, it is, he has the cover of it. Howard now, Johnson's been on the show have, before. Have, can you bear with me? Can I walk away from, I mean, this sure. isn't live, right? So no, no, I want to show no, you ahead. something. You, if you hold on one second, I got to show you guys one thing. Hold on. Okay, so we talked about the Pat's uh, cheesesteak commercial for Cinderella. So when I first met with them, they had done an independent single of the song Shake Me and Nobody's Fool that they'd put up, pressed up and sold just at local gigs here in Philadelphia. So I don't know if you guys ever seen it, but here is the cover. Can you see it? Yeah. Well, you, hold on. Oh, hold it up a little higher. There you go. Here's the there cover. You go. That independent single they did back in 1984 with the original band. For Shake Me, Nobody's Fool. So wow, I've never seen that before. Well, I've never seen that. So if you want to edit this in around that Pat's cheesesteak story, you can add this in as like <laughs> that, <laughs> that's so cool. A visual aid. So there you go. So so they they really did look like a glam band before they got signed. Yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> Nothing wrong they with also, that. Too, well, you know, thing another, one of the other negative comments. I didn't dwell. There's a few other negative comments I didn't dwell on. One and one was about where I said about the Night Songs cover and somebody said, oh, there was not, one of the comments was there was nothing wrong with the Night Songs cover, it was great. And again, at that moment, it was great. And yes, it's a beautiful cover, 
but um, unfortunately, it put them in that bucket of the hair yes. band. Yeah, it turned me off. They, until I mean, I they were never. They were. They were a blues rock band. They were never a hair band, and that's what I made the comment about. If I could do the night songs cover over again, I would just for that reason, the image reason that it was just, they just became lumped in with all the hair bands. And that's, that's why I made that comment. You know, that like somebody said, jumped I, on that, it. You know, cover that, turned yeah. me Once again, home run episode with yep. Larry Mazur. Home we're just run. getting started. Just getting yeah. started. I mean, I could, I could do that for hours. I, you know, I would sit here and bring him in and go album by album through his catalog. Share a story. What do you remember? What do you remember? I mean, the cheap trick story, amazing. Uh, you know, the white snake kiss story. You know, I mean, we all know what ended up happening, but we're hearing from him going, and I haven't heard from David Coverdale since then. And he used to be a great friend of mine. Um, hey, David, call Larry. Let's mend the fences here. You know, it's, it's, it, life's too short to carry grudges like that. Um, you know, kiss and AM records. You know, I never knew that they were even thinking about talking to other record labels at that point in time. But, you know, Larry brings it up. Um, just, yes, such great insight, such great memories. Um, I loved it all. You know, I would say homework is quite simple. What did you walk away from this episode going, wow, I didn't know that. That was amazing. That was cool. Is Talking about Nelson, talking about Union. You know, all of that stuff was just, to me, so cool. So cool. So um, you know where to go to leave your homework answers because, listen, you know Larry's going to read your answers. Every one of them. <laughs> Every one of them. And he'll write them down and come back for his next episode and address them personally. <laughs> so, yeah, go leave your answers on YouTube or Facebook or wherever. Um, let us know what you thought about this. And uh, I think we definitely need to work Larry back in at some point in the future again. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody. That's it. Three sides of the coin. We'll see everybody next week. So you love the show. Visit three sides of the coin.com. Subscribe on YouTube, follow and rate us on Spotify, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate your support. For three sides of the coin provided by. LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with a Z.